0: Should I just mute myself or what?
1: Yeah, just mute yourself until we call on you after the news.
0: Um, You don't have to pay attention at all. You don't even have to listen. (laughs) Um...
1: Hello and welcome to the Europlex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy and in this episode we're going to be speaking to journalist Edith Inotai about the situation in Hungary and to our very own Otto Christian van Ajor about his article on the first year of an ID group party in power in Estonia. With me of course is Europalex Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel how are you doing?
0: I'm good, I'm good. Um, still in my closet, still in quarantine but, uh, but yeah getting through it personally. For context, um, I think we should it,
1: probably give some context to the to the closet comment, because I don't think we've explained that on air before. David um, <laughs> records this in a closet in his house. Yeah. He doesn't live in a closet.
0: No, I don't live in a closet, but uh I actually lucky enough to have a closet I can stand in to wow. record these lovely wow. podcasts. And we're now at episode ten.
1: It's a weird flex, flexing about the size of your closet. But yes, episode ten. <laughs> <laughs> um, episode ten I know. Can you believe ten episodes? Yeah. I I can't. Now, where does the time go, Yeah,
0: eh? yeah it's crazy.
1: Here's to 10 more. Um, but first, <laughs>
0: more.
1: Yeah, like, more, hopefully. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not done in 10 <laughs> episodes. But first up, as ever, let's have a quick roundup of the news from Europe over the last two weeks. And first, I want to take you to Italy, uh, where, besides uh, Emilio Romana and Calabria having elections earlier this year, on the 26th of January, seven more regional elections were supposed to be taking place in Italy during 2020. Uh, that's the Aosta Valley on the April nineteenth, and then on the thirty-first of May, Campania, Liguria, Marche, Apulia, Tuscany, and Veneto. These elections have, of course, now been cancelled/slash delayed due to restrictive measures imposed to fight the spread of coronavirus in Italy. There's not yet been an official announcement of the new date, but it will likely be between the fifteenth of October and the fifteenth of December later this year. Now, there's a constitutional referendum on cutting the number of MPs, which is likely to suffer the same fate. It is a, a, a manifesto promise of the Cinco Stelle, the five-star movement, uh, which sits with the non-inscripts group in the European Parliament, which was initially planned for the 29th of March, but obviously will be delayed to a similar point. That referendum, if passed, will, from the next elections, reduce the number of seats in the lower house of the Italian Parliament from 630 to 400, and in the upper house from 315 to 200. The government is apparently considering holding a single election day for the regional and local elections and the constitutional referendum, uh, Super Tuesday in Italy, if you will. Uh, The latest available data for this is expected to predict a 22nd of November ballot, which is the deadline for consulting the Italian people in the referendum.
0: So from Italy, we're going to Poland on a new story. We would first like to warn our listeners that there are mentions of policies on abortion. Um, Civil rights groups in Poland have criticized moves amid lockdown by Polish legislators to further restrict women's right to access abortion. Alongside this, the initiative would also lead to the removal of all sex education from all Polish schools um, under the guise of stopping the promotion of underage sex. Uh, Women's rights groups and Amnesty International have roundly rejected these proposals, with activists staging both physical and virtual protests against the legislation this week, saying that the abortion critics are using this period when the public is naturally distracted to further their aims. Presently, it is unclear whether the governing right-wing Peace Party, a member of the European Conservatives and Reformists Group, would seek to immediately pass the legislation. However, incumbent President Duda has held similar views for legislation in the past and has stated that he would sign it. This is the second time legislation of this type has been under discussion. Previously, in 2016, it sparked mass demonstrations, uh, known as the Black Protests. Zooming
1: out slightly, I want to take you to the whole of Europe, where European countries have continued to lay out further measures to respond to their countries' COVID-19-related situations. Two significant historic annual events were cancelled this week by their respective governments. That's July's Pamplona Bull Run in Spain and Germany's Oktoberfest. In the same way, large gatherings have been banned across European countries, with Ireland extending their ban on large capacity events until October. As different countries prepare exit strategies from lockdown and virus response, Denmark became the most economically functional nation in Europe by some metrics, as hairdressers and other small businesses were given the green light to reopen, as Health Minister Magnus Heinecke of the Danish Social Democrats announced plans to test the entire nation for coronavirus these next few months we'll see tensions rise as Europeans compare their government's response to their neighbors. Tensions are already quite high in some countries, for example about 50 Bosnians have gone on hunger strike in Sarajevo after being put in forced quarantine. Furthermore, in an EU refugee camp on the island of Chios in Greece, the death of a 47-year-old refugee sparked civil unrest seeing several government buildings set on fire in the tightly quarantined camps. As this crisis rolls on into the summer, it is likely that tensions will raise further in the months ahead.
0: Well, let's hope not. Um, And now to a more positive story about uh, financial assistance. So staying on the subject of coronavirus still, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, has revealed on Twitter that it is proposing for €3 billion to be offered in macro-financial assistance for Albania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Georgia, Jordan, Kosovo, Moldova, Montenegro, North Macedonia, and Ukraine. The assistance is meant to mitigate the impact of COVID-19 in these countries. And she says it signifies the EU's solidarity with its Balkan and immediate neighbours.
1: It's been a, a bit of controversy over things like this over recent months and some bad blood between uh, EU accession states and East, Eastern European states and the European Union. So let's hope that yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> smooths over some of those bumps. Staying with the European Commission, uh, the Commission, along with several partners, has launched a COVID-19 data platform to enable the rapid collection and sharing of available research data as part of its uh, COVID action plan. The aim is to provide an open, trusted and scalable European and global environment where researchers can store and share data sets such as DNA sequences, protein structures, data from preclinical research and clinical trials, as well as epidemiological data to help with nation's treatment and hopefully, future vaccination. The northernmost point on the contiguous European Union lies at Purekari Cape in Estonia. The former Soviet country and EU member state since 2004 is the fourth least populated state in the European Union. That said, how populist is it? Just see what I did there? As the only country in the EU which currently features a right wing ID, Identity and Democracy Party, in its government, Europalex, wants you to find out. So this week, we dispatched our Estonian correspondent, Otto Kristian-Vanohue, uh, to write a piece for the website on precisely this topic. So we're sitting down with him now to get to know our Northeastern neighbours a little better. It's great to have you on. So let's start with the basics of all of this. Who's in government in Estonia, and how big a part do the right-wing party, EKRE, play? <laughs>
2: current coalition is a triple coalition uh, which has been basically the norm for most estonian governments since the early 2000s uh, the coalition is made up of the uh, center party uh, who belongs to the U- renew europe group in the european parliament uh, ECRA, has mentioned before that belongs to the id group and uh, pro Patrio, which belongs to the epp
1: Okay, so that's sort of a broad centre to the right coalition. What has that meant for government policy? Have uh, EKRE been able to achieve sort of their core aims in in, in social conservatism and direct democracy, or have they been held back by their coalition partners?
2: Um, It's difficult to say, really. For government this has uh, definitely been a trial, Um, arguably this has been the most interesting year in Estonian politics there has ever been, um, well in recent history at least. Um, But when it comes to Ekra Aims really, there hasn't been much that they have uh, been able to accomplish. When it comes to direct democracy, there is a referendum planned in 2021 which would ask the populace uh, whether to define marriage as between one man and one woman on a constitutional level. However, this would not really influence the uh, main issue that has prompted this question, which is the cohabitation law, since uh, marriage and cohabitation are legally distinct entities.
1: So what about um, other policy areas? One thing that I know a lot of Europeans have been looking at have been uh, ECRA's uh, sort of climate denial. um, And has that influenced government policy at all? Um,
2: From other policy areas, it seems to be in uh, Ecr opposition to foreign workers, largely agricultural workers and builders uh, coming from Ukraine. That ECRA has been trying to stop... uh, they also have had a slight issue with uh, the Estonian i voting system and have uh, pushed for greater oversight uh, into the system to avoid abuse. When it comes to climate denial, Ecker hasn't really influenced government policy beyond what uh, Centre would have wanted in the beginning because um, Estonia is primarily the uh, reliance on um, oil shale uh, for energy production in and the energy plants are in northeastern Estonia, which is predominantly Russian-speaking and also stronghold for center. As such, uh, beyond arguing for energy independence, Ecr has even uh, weirdly uh, supported the... Uh, well the building of um, a wind farm. There has been a great deal of debate on whether this wind farm should be or shouldn't be uh, built. Uh, The issue largely stems from the fact that the wind farm would block uh, radar coverage in northeastern Estonia to a degree.
1: So, just sort of looking a little bit more at the broad context of uh, Estonian politics, as you know, with many uh, identity and democracy family parties across Europe, the Conservative People's Party, which is the English translation of ECRA, um, was was able to rise to popularity through criticism of, of the governing establishment um, since its foundation um, a few years ago. Now, what a lot of uh, observers will see is that now the ECRA is in a a government with the so-called establishment, Estonian Centre Party and Pro Patria, both of which are um, well-established parties within the political mainstream of Estonia. Um, You know, how have voters responded to their votes for an anti-establishment party now keeping a a similar establishment in power? It's
2: weird, actually. Uh, From a polling standpoint, ECRA has... um, Floundered largely. It hasn't gone up, it hasn't gone down, it has stayed at about 17% since the elections. Um, there have, of course, been some higher points, but the general gist of it has been around like 17%. However, looking at this from an establishment and establishment point, well, the return of Centre as an establishment party is actually a quite new thing since the um, the, uh, the proposal of the former party leader uh, Edgar Savisar in 2016 uh, marked the point where uh, could really actually return to the political norm in Estonia. Um, it also shares a, a quite large uh, base with uh, Ekret, to be totally fair, of uh, Estonian-speaking um, non-nationalist people who are in the lower income sections and uh, who share similar views, as well as farmers and other rural people.
1: So if we look at this overall, broadly, how do you think that ECRA have managed out of a coalition? You know, junior partners in most countries, junior partners in coalitions tend to be be damaged by being in, in that coalition. Is this the same in Estonia? Is this what happened with ECRA?
2: Not really sure, to be fair. If anything, ECRA has uh, damaged the coalition more than uh, the coalition has damaged ECRA at this point, given that there have been some issues, uh, given that we are now on the fourth uh, Minister of Foreign Trade and Information Technology, as well as the second Minister of Rural Affairs. However, at this point, ECRA seems to be chugging along quite normally, and as some would argue laying ground for... uh, normalization or um, continued participation in uh, the political mainstream
1: that's fascinating that um, the normal trend isn't going on in the same way and they've been able to to capitalize on their position in government um, to benefit themselves for the future so just to tail off what what should we expect from Estonian politics in the next few years um, in the run-up to the next general election
2: Uh, Well, in 2021, as I mentioned before, we have uh, local elections coming up, uh, as well as a referendum during the local elections. It is thought that ECRA will try to uh, play to their strong points, the referendum, uh, to gain support on the local level as well. After that, we also have the presidential elections coming up quite soon. And let's just say the current president and the current... Government don't really see eye-to-eye on a lot, which means that the Estonia might end up with a new president.
1: Sounds like we've got some good political drama to look forward to there. Um, and of course, Otto will be covering it for us uh, at europalex on all of our social media platforms. Otto, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us um, about our Northeastern neighbour. It's been great to get to know the country a little better and of course to have you on. Thank you for having me. Hello there. Europe LX is run by volunteers, as I'm sure you know at this point. Everything we do, including this podcast, is with only the help of our supporters. We will soon be sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and more via our Patreon. And with your support, we'll be doing a whole lot more on so many more platforms. Don't miss out, support us on Patreon, and go with us all the way.
0: Hi, everyone. So I'm very happy today to have Edith Inotai as the guest on uh, the EuropaLakes podcast. She is a Hungarian journalist and researcher at the Hungarian Think Tank Center for Euro-Atlantic Integration and Democracy.
3: Hi, Edith. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course, of course. We are all very interested to pick your brains on uh, on everything Hungary. Uh, As always, there's a a lot of talk about, about the country right now, and has been for quite some years. Uh, there's been a lot of attention across Europe at the situation in your country, but I guess we sort of have to kick off talking about the COVID-19 situation, and how that's impacting politics. So it's been widely reported that the Hungarian government have put in place a very draconian law am i right in order to counter the spread of covid-19 in in hungary
3: well yes and no there was a lot of talk about this um, controversial emergency law which was passed on march the 31st i believe and many called hungary uh, a dictatorship and orban uh, a dictator after this law was um, was passed But I think there is a lot of misinterpretation uh, vis-a-vis this law. So let's try to get that right. What's really in the law and what's not in the law. This is actually a three-page long document, a very short one. And it is very vaguely worded. And uh, this is not an accident. Many of those pieces of legislation by the FedEx government are worded vaguely. So just, you know, keep people insecure. What is really in the background? What does the government really want with this legislation? This is a prime example of that. So what are the main problems and the criticism? Um, The first point is that uh, the law says that um, the government will have the possibility or could have the possibility to rule by decree. Uh, there was a big uh, uproar in, in the global media. And, uh, of course, our image in Hungary was, has been tarnished anyway. So this just contributed to it. But it doesn't mean that uh, the government suspended parliament. That's not true. Actually, parliament convened even today. Uh, there was a lot of discussion. There are talks. There are laws being passed. So the parliament is in session. But the law says that if the parliament is incapacitated due to illness, uh, due to the corona crisis, uh, and they cannot convene, then the government has the possibility to rule by decree and extend uh, the emergency measures when the government thinks they are necessary. So actually, this is another problem with the law that... um, it extends uh, the emergency measures uh, to an indefinite time, so there is no deadline. In most countries, there is a deadline three yeah. months, half a year. I think France is probably the um, uh, the one which gave the biggest mandate, like one year. But yeah. here, there is no there is no deadline. So basically. Until the end of the time, uh, the government could rule by decree if the parliament could not come together. And this is a point which nobody could really explain, even from the government, why was this indefinite mandate necessary. And there is a lot of speculation about that. Uh, There are people who say it's not really about the corona crisis, but the the economic crisis, which will come after the corona crisis. So basically, the government would like to have a very strong mandate after the corona crisis to manage the economic crisis. Yeah. So that's the situation. Just one thing about the, go- about the parliament. Yeah. So actually, even if um, the government suspended parliament, that would be not much of a change because we have a parliament which is a very loyal Tool or institution to the oh. present government, because the government has two-thirds majority in yeah. the parliament. So they can pass any laws they wish.
0: Can we talk a bit more about this? Because as you say, obviously there is this decree now uh, that does give them, um, in one way, you know, a lot more power in the specific situation you describe. But as you say, I think the reason this becomes so discussed and the reason why people look at Hungary so much whether it's you know, thinking uh, of the Orban government as being very decisive or as something that's uh, to be of worry. You, as you say, um, Fidesz, which, which is, until now, um, part of the European People's Party in the European Union, is in government and has an extremely strong presence in parliament. Can you explain from an electoral law and an institutional level how that's come about? Um, because, as you say, two-thirds. I exactly. Yeah. I assume they, they didn't get 66% in the, in the last election. So how come? No,
3: they didn't. So that's, that's how the electoral system works in Hungary. Um, it's actually, Fidesz, which introduced this new electoral law in 2015, just uh, a year after their election victory, Um, They reduced the number of the MPs to half, reduced the number of electoral constituencies, redrew um, electoral boundaries. Many talked about gerrymandering, that they changed the borders borders of the electoral constituencies in favor of Fidesz. And they also abolished the two-round system, which we used to have in individual constituencies, So there used to be a chance for opposition parties to withdraw candidates before the second round and join forces and defeat the leading candidates. So we don't have that anymore. What we have is a system in which the strong party gets even stronger and much stronger. So I will give you a few numbers just to see how the votes are translated into mandates. So in 2010, um, till before this new election law, Fides received 53 of uh, percent of the votes, which is huge. That's huge. Yeah. 53 uh, percent of the vote, and gained 68 percent of the mandates. That was the fo- the first two thirds majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2014, under the new law, they received 8% less vote, but almost the same result. This was already the result of this new election law, And in the last parliamentary election in 2018, uh, they were supported by 49% of um, the votes. This is party list votes and got again 68% of the mandates, which is two thirds. This is pretty much unprecedented in the democratic world. And um, even the OSCE's uh, monitoring uh, group labeled the last elections free but not fair uh, because they referred to the the massive difference in resources, party financing between government and opposition um, and even the, the lack of level playing field for the opposition Uh, in the media. So it's not just the low, but the whole atmosphere, the whole complex world of Hungary, which makes the strongest party even stronger and with an unprecedented uh, strong mandate.
0: Yeah. So obviously, even if you look at just the popular vote, Fidesz is just a huge success story within Hungary for the past decade. And something we've discussed Europe elects a lot in the past month or so is the, the surge for ruling um, parties and the surge for uh, heads of government in light of this crisis, um, a sort of rally around the flag effect, you can say. And uh, while we recognize that Orban in Hungary started from an already very strong position, has there been any sense in terms of public support for him and Fidesz increasing in recent months?
3: Yes, slightly. Um, I looked at the data um, you um, you mentioned. It's um, it's Point Polling Institute. This is a government closed, government funded polling institute. Nevertheless, the data is probably um, broadly speaking correct. Even other institutes find that uh, the government support is slightly growing. I think this is um, this is not uh, this is not new hu- not new in Hungary and not new in Europe. It's completely understandable that in crisis situations, uh, it's usually the government which gets stronger and the public confidence grows in the government that they would be able to manage um, the crisis. Um, so I think it's absolutely normal. This is this is not a uh, it's it's not a good situation uh, or not a favorable situation for any opposition party because if you criticize the government you will be labeled as traitor as somebody who was not willing to join forces in those difficult times your your, your country is um, heading to Um, But if you support the government, then you can never really capitalize on this support because the credit will be taken by the government anyways. But when the crisis is over and the lessons will be drawn uh, from the crisis and the management, then a competent opposition party can gain. Uh, But we we are far from that, so we'll see how that works in Europe. Move
0: on to... um... The opposition now then. Um, so obviously any political system facing a force such as Fidesz that has more than 50% support sits in government for this amount of time is gonna struggle. But what about the opposition parties in Hungary is making them as weak as they are now.
3: Yeah, right. Well, the opposition, that's a pretty sad story in Hungary, uh, and that has been going on for the past 10 years. I think uh, a a lot has to do with the opposition when it comes to this absolute power of Fidesz, so the the weakness of the opposition. At the moment, you have four opposition parties in parliament. The the biggest opposition party is Jobbik, which is um, uh, formerly, at least, a far-right party, uh, which is going through a clear identity crisis because they try to be more moderate, more acceptable. They're cutting back on aggressive language. There is no hate speech against the Roma, uh, against migrants and stuff like that. Uh, They try to be very pro-European and become the main critics of the government on corruption issues um but the problem is that then they are losing their core voters so fides practically took over their slogans and even the playing field and some of some of their voters so Jobbik, as the biggest opposition party a former far right party is currently struggling right now on the other side you have two leftist parties and a small greenish liberal party Um, which are also fighting between each others. The two leftist parties are the Hungarian Socialist Party, which is like the successor of the old Hungarian Workers' Party before the democratic transition, and the party which ruled in Hungary between 2002 and 2010, and uh, is partly responsible for the mass uh, left. Uh, in the financial crisis and the mismanagement of the crisis, that they have a very bad reputation. Unfortunately, the other party, the Democratic Coalition, is a splitter party of the same socialist party, uh, which was founded by the former prime minister, Mr. Du Chine, who was actually a socialist prime minister, and who became famous um, for uh, giving a speech in which he admitted that he lied day and night before the 2016 elections to win the election. So this speech went uh, over in the medias, in the social medias, in uh, everywhere. Uh, so that was like an instant hit, let's put it that way. Um, and uh, he still carried on for a couple of years and then stepped down. In the middle of the financial crisis so just in the the worst time yeah. um and then a caretaker government uh, had to take over to to straighten things out and this is when fidesz came in later on and won by uh, two-thirds so that was no wonder that a new party won by such a majority so many hungarians believe that mr george the former prime minister has a huge responsibility in this two-thirds victory of um, of Fidesz, and he should have stepped down much earlier and even leave politics. So right now, he is one of the leaders of the opposition. So just imagine that. Is there yeah. any
0: way in which you can realistically see the opposition um, either joining together in some... Is there anything strong enough to unite them? Or is there either of those parties or movements that you see as being especially um, primed to be able to capitalize on any potential failings of um, the Fidesz government in the eyes of Hungarians?
3: Well, they had to learn very painfully that the only way forward is to join forces. It took them 10 years, basically. So they joined forces last year at the municipal elections, uh, and it turned out that they could actually win the capital, Budapest, which is right now governed by a liberal leftist um, guy, Mr. Korachan, who is the mayor. And there is a majority for the opposition in the city council. And there are some other uh, bigger cities uh, in the country where the opposition uh, was able to join forces. But it's very, very difficult because you have to um, make voters accept uh, that maybe you're a leftist or a liberal and then the, um, the candidate is an extreme rightist guy or a formerly extreme rightist guy. How do you vote for them? Mm-hmm. So this is actually the system is, is constructed in a very skillful way by Mr. Orban and by Fidesz, that as long as he can sit in the middle and there is an opposition left to him and an opposition right to him, uh, chances are very slim that he could be toppled, he could be defeated in an election. Uh, The opposition is trying, they are learning, but it's gonna be very, very difficult to join forces and to set up like a joint list.
0: Yeah, even though Fidesz is seen as a sort of populist right, uh, in certain cases even, you know, far-right autocratic party it's described as, in the EU parliament it sits with the European People's Party. And this has caused a lot of friction. And earlier in the spring, a few of the parties in EPP even signed a letter saying that Fidesz should be excluded from the group and then this whole drama has sort of been put on hold, which I'm sure Orban is thankful for, thanks to the current crisis. Yes. <laughs> uh, can you please uh, sort of explain the dynamics? Why has this become ever so potent now after 10 years? And do you think we'll see Fidesz still an EPP member by the end of 2020?
3: Well, I think that's the million-dollar question. I think we will actually, but it has a lot to do with the current crisis and that the EPP is not really uh, in the situation of dealing with uh, with Fides. Uh, and it's very difficult for them to find uh, find a real answer uh, to this problem. Um, this has been going on ever since the refugee crisis, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, Fides went on different ways from the EPP, and it has become very vocal in its criticism towards uh, the European Union, towards Brussels, towards um, even some members of the EPP. But we have to keep in mind, and you said it quite correctly, Fidesz is a populist party, which means that it's not an ideological party. Um, It's much less important for Orbán and uh, and for Fidesz, uh, this whole thing about Christianity and values, as it is sometimes portrayed. It is power what really counts. So I think as long as the EPP is the strongest party uh, family in Europe and and in the EU, and uh, they have a majority in the European Council, Orbán will have an interest to belong to the party and especially in times of the negotiations um, about the um, the next uh, EU budget, yeah. uh, where Hungary is about to lose about like twenty percent of the funds it received between uh, twenty fourteen and and uh, twenty ten, so a lot is at stake. And he, if he and if he is still in the EPP, uh, the chances are bigger that he can fight for the interest of the country, which is actually. The interest of Fidesz, because as long as they can keep up uh, this um, this increase in living standards in Hungary, which has been going on in the last ten years, uh, the chances uh, that they are going to be reacted are going to be uh, higher. The problem is if the money is not coming into the country, if Fidesz has to face an economic crisis, and if eventually people take to the streets. And this is going to be a crisis which will be very difficult for this government to handle. But getting back to the EPP, um, Fedus' membership is already suspended uh, for a year, which means they cannot really participate in high-level meetings uh, and their politicians cannot be elected to any party position. Nevertheless, they sit in the parliament and participate in the voting, so they are still influential. Now, uh, the news is that 13 uh, parties in the EPP uh, asked for the expulsion of Fidesz after this controversial emergency law, but I'm sure that the decision will be made sometimes later because um, I think a General Assembly has to be convened, which will definitely not happen in the, in the coming weeks. So a lot will depend on, as usual, on Germany, mm-hmm. and on the election of the new CDU uh, leadership after Angela Merkel, how tough they are going to be on, uh, on Orban and on Fidesz. But there is this very strange consensus in the EPP, that it's still easier to control Fidesz when they are inside uh, than when they leave and perhaps join forces with some kind of obscure radical leaders. I personally think this is an illusion, and this strategy will lead to an erosion of the EPP because Orban is very skillfully cutting new divisions inside the party family. So sooner or later, EPP has to decide.
0: I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see. Um, Thank you very much, Um, Erit. It's fascinating getting all your insights about Hungarian politics at this time. Um, And um, yeah, we might have you back in the future once we've seen how politics develops. Thank you. So now it's time for our recurring segment, Who is Who, where we, each episode, look into two different European commissioners uh, to try and shed some awareness on them. Uh, and um, we're still in episode 10 only, so we haven't run out of them yet. Uh, so why don't you kick off, you and with um, the lovely man you've picked out the hat this week.
1: Yeah. And so this week, the answer to the question, Who is Who, is Janez Lenarcic, who is a diplomat from Slovenia. He currently is the European Commissioner for Crisis Management, who's probably quite busy at the moment, and is in charge of coordinating work on better prevention and preparedness for emergencies by supporting member states in developing disaster and risk strategies to improve their early warning systems. A little bit of background to him. Lenarčić entered the Slovenian Foreign Service in 1992. Between 2006 and 2008, he was the Secretary for Foreign Affairs Representing Slovenia during the Lisbon Treaty negotiations. So, there's a man who knows his way around the European Union. He's also been a uh, director of the Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights within uh, the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe as well. Lenarčić is an independent politician but was nominated to his current position by former Prime Minister Marian Cárec, whose party list is associated with the Liberal Renew Europe party at the EU level. Gabriel, who have you got?
0: I've got Valdis Dombrovskis, um, So he's the commissioner for Latvia. He's an executive vice president, and his lovely title is commissioner for an economy that works for people. So Dombrovskis is a former prime minister of Latvia uh, and has been the country's commissioner to the EU since 2014, when he was nominated to the position following an unsuccessful bid, actually, to become the leader of the center-right European People's Party. Um, in the end, he endorsed the eventual winner, um, Jean Claude Juncker, that we all know. Um, as Commissioner for an Economy that Works for People and Executive Vice President of the European Commission, uh, he is responsible for deepening the Economic and Monetary Union and implementing the European Pillar of Social Rights. Uh, he's also in charge of uh, financial stability, financial services, and capital markets union. So uh, I assume he's also. Uh, quite busy at the moment. Um, He started his career as a laboratory assistant, actually, and pursued a PhD in electrical engineering. He got involved with national politics in 2002 when he joined the center-right New Era Party uh, and served as finance minister for two years. He then moved on to become an MEP for the same party after the 2004 European elections, uh, sitting with the European People's Party Group. Then in 2009, he went back to Latvia, uh, becoming its prime minister, a position he held when the New Era party merged with Civic Union and Society for Other Politics in 2011 to form the center-right unity party that still exists today. Dombrovskis resigned in 2014 following the Solitude of shopping center roof collapse in which 54 people were killed and for which he was held responsible along with other prominent figures in left politics. Thank you for listening to the Europe Alex podcast. If you like what we do, which we hope you do, subscribe and review the podcast, and of course, tell people about us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, You can find us at europelex.eu if you want to see our website, and at europelex across all social media. Except on Instagram, that is, where you can find us at at europe underscore lex. See you next time. Stay home. Stay safe. Wash your hands.
1: You've been listening to the Europe Alex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Heddenbrunn. The managing editor was Polychronis Karapoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Penu rios and Leon Lisener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson. And the music was by Jose Alvarado.
0: Cool.